Good evening, everyone. If you can find a seat, I think we'll begin. I want to thank you all so much for joining us tonight uh, for another conversation about race. Uh, my name is Diana Morris, and I have the great pleasure of being the director of the Open Society Institute here in Baltimore, which is the one field office we have in, in the United States, focusing on a particular city and state. Uh, we're really delighted to be here again at the Enoch uh, Pratt Free Library. Uh, this has been a wonderful partnership, and I want to give a big thanks to all the Pratt staff for the help that they've done. You know, this is actually the fourth year of our Talking About Race series, so it's really because of you that we have felt it's been important to continue. And we're always open for your ideas about other speakers to have, other topics to address, and even other ways to go beyond the talking stage. Uh, the issue of race is one that we at the Open Society Institute address and touch every day. Uh, when we are working particularly to increase opportunity, increase justice throughout our city and state. And that doesn't matter what issue we're talking about, whether it's tackling drug addiction, uh, working on criminal justice and juvenile justice, or education and youth development. We're particularly concerned about our community who are living in poverty often, experience dis discrimination historically and, and, and at the present time. Uh, and because of that, we felt that um, the Talking About Race series is really able to address a number of the issues that we focus on every day and beyond. We're here tonight to discuss an issue that is quite provocative, but we also think it's one that's critical to understand. It continues to be important to us as we all go about our daily lives because it influences us. It influences all of us, whether we're teachers, doctors, lawyers, judges, even though we might not be aware of it. As we watch events unfold, the way we think about race consciously and unconsciously can absolutely impact um, all sorts of things, how we vote, where we shop, whom we interview, whom we suggest as a reference, uh, where we, uh, whom we talk to when we're waiting for a bus, the friendships we make and the friendships we encourage our, our kids to make. This list, the, the decisions and the actions that ultimately express our values and what weave really the fabrics of our lives, all this list uh, goes on and on. And much of these actions and beliefs are motivated by unconscious uh, beliefs. So. Uh, one example, uh, which is, I think, all of it, um, something that we all vividly remember, is the fatal shooting of Trayvon Martin, uh, which occurred just last February. And the event was really shocking to many people uh, in the community and in the country. But what happened to Trayvon Martin was really not a surprise to people of color, who knew firsthand that black men and boys are often considered dangerous and threatening, and that they're suspicious just by walking down the street. And what many articles attested to um, is that black parents, as a matter of course, uh, have to sit their children down at a certain age and give them the talk. And the talk is a wrenching conversation in which parents have to tell their innocent children that others, white people, police, will probably stop them for no reason as they walk on neighborhood streets and when they're older, when they're driving um, on public streets. 
they have to tell their children that just because of the color of their skin, they will be targeted unjustly. These stereotypes are pernicious. They are culturally embedded, and they have been with us really for generations. And all of that is no accident. These negative stereotypes were constructed at the time that Jim Crow laws were uh, established and implemented. And those laws were put in place so that white Southerners could justify uh, arrests of former slaves. They needed to create, essentially, the image of dangerous black men. Tonight, we'll hear about some important research findings that show us how we're all affected, still, by these stereotypes, how they're actually incorporated into our unconscious belief systems, and how we all fall victim to implicit bias and racial anxiety. We'll hear how these negative perceptions affect the behaviors of all people, doctors and judges when they come to decisions, for example, about health care and justice. And we'll learn about the impact that this has on young black men and their future. But importantly, we'll also hear about how awareness and talk about this subject, including talk just like we're having tonight, um, is something that can actually be the first stage in changing those unconscious beliefs that we have. Our two speakers tonight are extremely well qualified to talk to us about this subject. We're first going to hear from Rachel Godsell, who is the co-founder and research director for the American Values Institute, which is a national consortium of social scientists and advocates and law professors focusing on the role of implicit bias in law and policy. Um, as well as the Eleanor Bontenso Pro Professor of Law at Seton Hall University Law School. Professor Godsell has written several articles on the role of implicit bias in law and policy, as well as an article entitled Implicit Bias Insights as Preconditions to Structural Change, which she co-authored with John Powell. She's written several amicus briefs in cases involving civil rights, including on behalf of the National Parent-Teacher Association and the parents involved in the community schools versus Seattle School District, uh, which was litigation um, at the Supreme Court. She also is the co-editor of Awakening from the Dream, Civil Rights Under Siege and the New Struggle for Equal Justice, uh, which was pub published by Carolina Academic Press. Now, the second speaker will be Alan Jenkins, and he is the executive director of the Opportunity Agenda, which is a communications research and policy organization dedicated to building the national will to expand opportunity for all. Before joining Opportunity Agenda, Alan was the director of human rights at the Ford Foundation, um, and in addition uh, to serving as assistant adjunct professor of law, uh, at Brooklyn Law School, he served as assistant to the Solicitor General at the U.S. Department of Justice, where he represented the U.S. government in constitutional and other litigation before the Supreme Court. Prior to that, he was the assistant counsel for NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, where he defended the rights of low-income communities suffering from exploitation and discrimination. The format for tonight uh, will be a little bit different than what we've done in the past. Uh, First, uh, we'll hear from Rachel and then Alan, as I mentioned, but then they will continue a conversation uh, with each other before they open up the floor um, for questions. 
So as always, um, I want to thank you again for being here. I also would urge you to check our website, which is um, audaciousideas.org. And you can sign up there for information about OSI and hear about the next forum like this one and other ones that we have in our office. You're all welcome to come. And I finally would say that if you feel that you want to support our work, please do. We, it's important work to continue, and we only can do it with your help. So please now join me in welcoming Rachel Gotzel and Ellen Jenkins. Thank you so much. It is truly wonderful to see this large crowd here on a Thursday night to talk and listen uh, to each other, think about race and the ways in which race affects all of us. And there's some, there's some really great news, which is, in some sense, racial attitudes in this country are absolutely better than they've been before in our history, and perhaps better than they are in any country in the world. The vast majority of Americans are completely committed to being anti-racist, very much want to live by their egalitarian values, and think that anyone who doesn't share that view, anyone who does hold racist values, is immoral. In fact, it is considered more immoral to be a racist in this country than it is to be a drunk driver. And so there's a part of us that can cheer this is kind of Benetton ad-ish for those of you who are of my generation, and you know, room for, and actually is, is seriously room for celebration. Uh, on the other hand, at the furthest end of that dichotomy uh, is, of course, the shooting of Trayvon Martin. Uh, some of you may recognize the picture next to Trayvon Martin, and it's a picture of Emmett Till. And I know for many of us, when uh, Trayvon Martin was killed, it brought up very, very painful memories of times in our country's history where the killing of young men uh, was, was too common, and it continues to be today. So we are, we are living in this very dissonant world in which there is absolute room for celebration and still room for so much more progress. And so one of the questions is, how is it that we have these positive attitudes? And I, I chose just one uh, kind of attitude factor to think about, which is attitudes toward intermarriage to realize, again, immense progress even since you know, I was in college, where only 48% of Americans thought that blacks and whites uh, should, 48% uh, th thought they should not date. Now, the vast majority think, doesn't matter, date who you want, 61%. think this is actually really good for society. So on just that one little measure, again, it's just an example, we've moved, uh, we've moved far. Now, some of you, or perhaps many of you in the audience may think, all right, there's this claim that people have these egalitarian attitudes. There's this, you know, people say to pollsters that they are anti-racist, but how is it possible that we can have these wonderful attitudes, these egalitarian attitudes, and yet still see the kind of daily microaggression, the stereotypes that, again, affect young black men and boys, that affect black women that affect you know, people, uh, sort of people of every race and ethnicity who aren't white, how is it possible that both of these things can coexist? For those of you who watch television, this is the guy who knows if you're lying. So one of the questions people often ask me is, come on, aren't white people just lying? Aren't you just lying? 
and the answer to this is somewhat complex. and it has something to do with as as debra mentioned the disjuncture between our conscious values, what our conscious brain tells us and what we consciously believe and what our subconscious, what our unconscious brain leads us to do. turns out, and this is actually an awesome factoid, we have access to about 5% of our brain's capacity. so our conscious brain does about 5% of the work. the vast majority is done unconsciously. now i'm going to take a step back from race for a second and i'm going to ask you to, to work with me to test and see our brains in action. so everyone ready? okay. so my request is that you please state the color of the text. and you have to do it out loud and you have to do it loudly for this to work. so everyone ready? okay. ready? You know, it's really interesting. Everyone was all together. We were all in one. And why, you know, you were all being a great audience, right? You knew I wanted you to state the color of the text. And when it was blue, red, green, black, and green, we did it in unison. We did it loudly. We did it together. But as soon as the color of the text was different from the word that you read, it became really hard. Because we are all so conditioned to automatically stating something that we read that you experience that cognitive dissonance. Now, if, we had, if I had like an hour, I, I have a version that I do where it's in Greek. And frankly, you can do it perfectly, unless you can speak, read Greek, of course. Um, so that's one example that so much of what we do, we do automatically, even if our conscious brain isn't intending. I have one more. Uh, sort of group effort. and again, I would just ask you to please follow the directions. it's really important that you follow the directions for this to, to be helpful for us. Okay. okay. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? So the only person I know who that doesn't work for is my mother, because she never follows directions. So she kept saying, look at the bear, everybody. Look at the bear. <laughs> it really ruins it. Um, so what we, learned from, what we learned from this slide is that we see what we're looking for. We see what we're looking for. And now we have to make sure we get to the next slide. Tanya, I may need you again. So how does this happen? I'm just going to start to talk. How does this happen? Um, the, re the reason this happens is if we had to think about every single thing that we, if we had to think about every single thing that we see, we would be paralyzed. If you had to look at every bit of stimuli in your midst, you couldn't move. 
If you had to think about whether to, what, what it was that you were seeing when you came into this room and who it was that was next to you, again, we would all be paralyzed. We, we couldn't function. We have to translate stimuli into categories. And so some of these categories, you know, you know when you see this to sit down, you know when this rings to answer it, you know when you see this to be concerned, although actually this is fake and so you wouldn't have to be concerned, but it would be a reasonable response. We also create schemas for people and those can serve us well. If you see a little tiny person with a little round chubby face who's down here who puts their arms up, you'll probably pick them up and hold them thinking they're a baby and that would be the right thing to do. And if you see someone who uh, is looking um, sort of significantly more frail than others that you see, you might offer them your chair. So these schemas can be very useful and necessary. You wouldn't not want to pick up the baby, but if in fact that were not a person who was a baby but a, a small person, that would be very insulting. So the schemas can translate into uh, stereotypes in which case they become deeply problematic. So this is another kind of fun one that we don't quite have time to do. Up here I have a doctor, a model, a law professor, and a scientist. And you know, sort of if we had time, we would sort of do a call out. I'll tell you, doctor, model, law professor, scientist. Um, and one question sometimes people ask is, why would this guy, my friend Jerry Kong, be worried or concerned that people will generally assume that he's good at math and as he said that he started playing the violin was three and that his mother ensured that he did calculus at eight. Why would those be bad things for people to assume about him? Well the reason is actually he studied it himself. He's a lawyer and when he studied whether or not people respond to someone who looks like him doing a deposition the same as they would someone who looks like him except is Caucasian, he found out that when the same words are spoken by someone who looks Caucasian, people are like, that person is warm, they care about me, they're aggressive, they'll be a great lawyer. When they're spoken by a person who looks like him, cold, not, you know, not sufficiently concerned about me, not aggressive, I don't want him as my lawyer. So the stereotypes, even if in some sense they seem positive, can nonetheless still be destructive. So when we talk about implicit bias, what we're talking about is the inconsistency between our egalitarian values and the stereotypes that we hold in that 95% of the unconscious in our brains. And the effect that implicit bias has is myriad. I have two examples up here. One is, now this woman probably doesn't in her conscious mind think that all black men are going to steal her purse, right? It's unlikely that she thinks that. And yet she has this unconscious reaction when she sees this guy wearing a suit in the elevator that she holds her purse close to her, which he then sees, which is a microaggression for him. You know, I wear my suit and I see this woman still responds to me like this. This is a more dramatic example, you may recall, when Professor uh, Henry Louis Gates was arrested and dragged from his home in handcuffs. You know, a Harvard professor coming home from China, tired, trying to get into his house, assumed initially by a police officer to be a criminal and then treated you know with absolute disrespect so these are examples of how you know that the, the police officer apparently who arrested professor gates does diversity trainings so this police officer doesn't think to himself i'm this racist guy who's going to harass black men that's not how he thinks to himself and as we know he was very hurt and upset when 
the sort of public conversation came around to the question of whether he was a racist and he had to go have beer with the president. So the, the, the claim that he was racist was something that he felt deeply and yet his actions, I think many would agree, reflect an implicit bias that he holds in his subconscious. Now, in some sense, sometimes people hear this and they say, oh, they throw up their hands. So we're all, you know, we all have implicit bias, we all hold these racial stereotypes, what can I do? Well, it turns out actually a great deal. Once we know that we may hold these stereotypes, particularly when we're talking about kind of rational or cognitive decisions, we can overcome them. And when I, when I explain to you why I don't think it's all white people lying, some of that view isn't just self-justifying, it's that there's really great research showing that when people are primed to realize that race may affect their thinking, they become egalitarian. So when juries hear instructions that make it clear that race may be at issue, they don't sentence black men any differently than they sentence white men. When it's subtle, when it's an interracial crime but race isn't spoken of directly, that's when they give the higher sentences. When doctors have files that show, you know, sort of the same symptoms and a little reference to the race of the, of the patient, but they're, but they're not really thinking about it, they're just running through and giving the diagnoses and the prescriptions, they're more apt to, pre uh, to prescribe a treatment that would result in surgery rather than a pill regimen because of stereotypes about whether or not black patients are likely to comply with a pill regimen. The minute they're told that race may affect the way they prescribe or diagnose, they change. And, they're, and they again, they handle themselves correctly and they give the same recommendations to white and black patients. So when we're talking about cognitive decisions, decisions that we make with our conscious minds, once we know that we might act in a way that's contrary to our conscious values, we can correct for it. You know, we can, we can bring someone in to do the interview, we can make the right decision as jurors, we can correct for it. There's another facet, though, of the way race works that doesn't involve rational cognitive decision making, and it's just as important. So in the relational dynamics between people, racial anxiety, the fear of being thought of as a racist, it turns out can be as or even more dangerous than these implicit biases. And this is, uh, this is a, 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 there's some interesting studies on this that I want to talk to you about. And the way this plays itself out has to do with how strongly we're motivated and how our brains function when we're worried about confirming stereotypes. So there's a phrase, stereotype threat, that emerged by a brilliant um, social psychologist, Claude Steele, in the context of the educational achievement gap where he found that in instances when black and white students were given a very hard test and told, this is a diagnostic test that's going to show how you know, kind of intellectually capable you were, you can see there was a pretty big, this is the, the orange is, is black, the, the blue is white, pretty big gap. The minute this was changed to, we're interested to see how people feel when they take this test, same test, look at the dramatic shrinkage. I mean, it's incredible. It almost completely disappears. And in many studies, it does. The, the, the racial difference does completely disappear. How does that happen? Well, if you're taking a test and all of your cognitive capacities have to be at work, and there's a part of your brain that's wondering, am I going to confirm a stereotype? You can't put all of that cognitive energy into the test. White men can be primed to have this effect if it's suggested, you know, Asians tend to do better in this math test than you do. 
then white men's performance shrinks. There's another interesting example. Uh, they, they tell white men, black men, uh, they have a putting green. This is a test of your spatial relations. One group, the white men do pretty well in that. This is a test of your natural athletic ability. The white men tank. So it can be primed in uh, any group. Now, there's a phrase that uh, Phil Goff, who's, who's someone uh, I work with, uh, phrase, which, which he calls white stereotype threat. And that's the specific fear that white people have that they are going to be thought of as racist. And this has a lot of effects. It can have an effect of white people seeming awkward because, again, their cognition's literally shutting down. They're going to think I'm racist. They're going to think I'm racist. They're going to think I'm racist. You know, one example, someone I went to law school with, she came from a community where literally everyone was white and Protestant. When she was with her new Jewish friends in law school, she, every time we'd go to lunch, I think I'm going to have a ham sandwich. Let's go get some shrimp cocktail. They were observant. So she had in her brain these you know, things that observant Jews don't eat because she didn't want to seem like she was, you know, sort of had issues with people who were Jewish. Well, oops. You know, her fear of, of offending them resulted in her saying kind of silly things. Um, but this has much more dire effects than simply being a little bit silly or awkward. On the street, the... In, 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 in police officer uh, uh, activities, uh, Phil Goff wanted to study what causes excessive uses of force. Why is it that we see higher levels of excessive use of force against African American and Latino young men than we do against white men? And he initially assumed that it was this implicit bias in these stereotypes. But what he found is, well, first of all, he found a bunch of explicit racists in the group. And he found that, in fact, not surprisingly, the explicit racist, the guy who, when Phil, Phil Goff, a black man, walked in and said, you know, I don't really like you because you're black, those guys did, in fact, stop people, stop black men at much higher levels. But when we're talking about excessive uses of force, here's the explicit prejudice guys. Here's the implicit prejudice guys. These are mostly men. And here's the group who are afraid of seeming racist. So the group who are most likely to use excessive force are neither the explicit racists nor the people suffering from implicit bias. It's the people who are worried about seeming racist. Now, how is that possible? Phil thinks it's because you have, a, as a police officer, two bases from, for authority on the streets, moral and physical. If you think the person you're interacting with thinks you're a racist, you don't have a lot of moral authority with that person. So first of all, your cognition shuts down because you're worried. Second of all, you don't have moral authority. So where do you go? You go to your gun. So this really does have potential, you know, literally uh, kind of life-threatening effects. My two other examples are in the, in the educational context. Two studies have been done which are, uh, which are similarly relevant. Peer advisors are given, you know, sort of uh, lists of courses that a pre, supposedly pre-med student wants to take, uh, calculus and chemistry at the same time, and they're asked a series of questions. And, th and this student is said to have their best subject be history and biology, worse is math. When the person who is concerned about being a racist has a white student, they say, don't take calculus and chemistry at the same time. Are you crazy? That's too hard. When they have a black student, they don't give them that warning because they don't want to seem like they don't believe in the black person and they're afraid the person's going to think they're racist. Well, what does that mean? that this student takes calculus and chemistry at the same time, which is too, too much. Similarly, middle school teachers don't give the same level of criticism to black and Latino students unless they think the, their principal has their back. So 
being kind, being worried, you know, being, be, being concerned that you may think about being a racist doesn't lead you to do the right thing. It can often lead you to do the wrong thing. A final example of, of sort of the levels of, of bias or that we're concerned about is the tendency to dehumanize, which is again embedded in stereotypes. And what this manifests itself as is often an assumption of, in, in the case of young men, thinking that this kid is 17 and this kid's about 13. Well, in fact, they're both 13. But what happens when the police officer thinks that he's 17? More apt to be aggressive, charging differently, you know, a whole different level of expectation. So the dehumanization factor, again, leads to violence in a way that we have to be concerned about. All right, so what do we do? Implicit bias, awareness, does an enormous amount of work. Racial anxiety, what we need to do to overcome that is frankly have experiences where we're in an environment that's multiracial, ideally where we have, frankly, someone who is of another race as our, as our boss, as our peer, where we have interactions where we experience the dynamic and the interaction where the white person isn't on top, where they, again, are subject to the criticism and the response from the person of color where they're on the other side. That does an enormous amount of work. And ultimately, the kinds of trainings, and this is John Powell who was mentioned, he does a, a lot of trainings uh, on this issue. And one of the reasons I think he's so incredibly powerfully effective is because when he does trainings, and now I'm talking about dealing with kind of white stereotype threat, there's all sorts of interventions we can do for the other kinds of stereotype threat as well. When John does trainings and when he conveys his true belief that the whites who he's interacting with really do want to be egalitarian. They do have values. They do want to be anti-racist. They may make mistakes sometimes, but that doesn't automatically lead to a, an assumption or a reality that that person is racist. We can kind of work together toward a, a place where, you know, sort of people are all seen as human. And so it's on both sides recognizing the, we can't be colorblind, that's not gonna happen, but we can move toward a period of mutual interaction and respect that can ameliorate much of this. I'm very happy to turn, the, uh, to, turn to Alan Jenkins, who's gonna tell us a great deal about how all this comes to be and to give another set of insights about how we can and must as a culture change it. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Rachel. Good evening, everyone. Oh, it's terrible. Good evening, everyone. All right, that was still lame, but uh, I'll take it. So uh, I don't really admit this to everyone, but uh, I live in New Jersey. And, you know, so I, I love the Garden State, but often when I go on vacation with my family, you know, people that will ask, so where are you from? And I'll say, New York area, you know. And they'll say, well, where exactly? And my kids will always blurt out, oh, we're from New Jersey. And probably three times out of 10, the person will say, oh, is it like on television? <laughs> now, think about the possibilities for it being like on television. They might mean The Sopranos, show about gangsters. They might mean Jersey Shore. They might mean Real Housewives of New Jersey. 
or, you know, heaven help us, Jersey-licious. I don't even know what that is, but I can promise you it ain't good. So the point being, <clears throat> they're projecting uh, an image of people and behavior that has nothing to do with us, uh, but that is part of our identity as people who live in New Jersey. Uh, and it's in uh, many ways a small taste of what uh, black men and boys are so often up against in the context of uh, our media environment. And so I want to talk to you a bit. I'm actually going to uh, close this. Okay. All right. Much better. So uh, I want to talk to you briefly about a body of research that my organization, the Opportunity Agenda, has created. Uh, it's this report. And it's available on our website, which is uh, opportunityagenda.org. We looked at three things. First, we looked at about a decade of research from political scientists and social psychologists and sociologists and media studies scholars and others about the effects of media depictions on black men and boys and the trends of those media depictions. Second, we looked at public opinion uh, about black males and of black males. How do we think about ourselves? And third, we looked at media consumption. What are black men uh, reading, watching, you know, Googling, all of that? I'm going to talk to you only about the first piece of research, which is uh, about media depictions of black men and boys. But I hope you'll go to our website and download the, the full report and look at the whole study. Uh, and I'm going to give you just the headlines. And then if we have time, I want to give you a couple of quick uh, multimedia examples. So what did we find? First big headline is media depictions are distorted. But they're distorted in particular ways that are particularly harmful, and that sometimes are so harmful that they're life-threatening. So the first depiction is, uh, the first distortion is the depictions are disproportionately negative in particular ways. Uh, black men and boys in our media, and we looked at uh, movies, television, video games, magazines, uh, radio, music videos, we looked at the, the full range of types of media, including uh, online media and social media. Uh, we find that black males are disproportionately depicted as associated with violence, with poverty, with crime. And when I say disproportionately, what I mean is not in relation to our representation in American society, but in relation to our representation in those activities. So 66% of poor people, at least when this research was done, were white folks. But 72% of people who poor people depicted in the media are black, uh, and overwhelmingly black males, although sometimes black females. So in other words, although the majority of, of poor Americans, low-income Americans, are uh, not black, the face of poverty is very much an African-American face. And the face of particularly homelessness and unemployment uh, amongst the poor is a black male face. Uh, the same we found was true with violence. The same we found was true with crime. So uh, drug use among whites and African-Americans in America is statistically equal. I'm going to say that again. Drug use among black and white Americans is statistically equal. Uh, we use drugs as uh, members of these different groups at roughly the same rates. That is also true of crack use. Use I'm talking about now. When was the last time you saw a non-black crack user in the media? 
right? So remember, the rates are equal, which means the vast majority of people who use crack are white, right? Because a small percentage of African-American males who represent only 8% of American society, and yet think about those media depictions. We see those over and over and over again, and as I'll talk about in a moment, that repeated depiction takes a toll. Uh, the same is true with poverty. The same is true with in seemingly intractable, unsolvable problems. Uh, that tends to be a trend. It's not every media depiction by any means, uh, but it, it's a persistent trend over decades in terms of the way in which black males are depicted across these types of media. It's especially true in uh, local television news, which, again, heaven help us, is where most people get their information from. Uh, so this is a longstanding trend. Another trend is under depiction or uh, inadequate depiction in positive roles. Talking heads on television, uh, fathers, workers, uh, people who use technology in advertisements, problem solvers. It's not to say there are no depictions, but again, you see a significant underrepresentation as compared to the representation of black males in these roles. Uh, many of us thought that when an African-American ma man was elected president, we would see a shift, a sea change in those media depictions. But in fact, the research over the last four years shows that there has not been a significant shift. And in fact, uh, journalists, African-American male journalists, uh, are, represent a smaller proportion of all journalists today than they did four years ago uh, when Barack Obama was elected. So despite uh, an important change in our political uh, decision-making, we don't see that reflected in our media. The third trend that we see over and over again is a failure to depict certain structural problems, the unequal opportunities that African-American males are often up against, the inadequate school funding and poor quality schools that they often face, issues of discrimination, both conscious and subconscious, of the kind that Rachel described. There are very few media depictions of those trends, and so people simply can't visualize them. So you think on the positive side, uh, a, a counterpoint would be the, the sea change, a very good thing in my view, of depictions of, of uh, uh, gay and lesbian kids and adults and why bullying of them, the discrimination that they're up against, is actually contrary to our values as a society and bad for everyone. We do not see those kinds of depictions uh, as it relates to the obstacles that black men and boys are up against. So what's the result? It's, it's as you would expect. If you have a disproportionately negative depiction and, an, and little or no depiction of the reasons for the inequalities that exist, what we see is that these media depictions contribute to, they are by no means the only factor uh, relating to you know, racial attitudes in America, but they're an important factor, especially for people whose main exposure to people of a particular group is through the media. You see a reduction in empathy, uh, a, a difficulty of audiences putting themselves in the place of black men and boys. You see a higher tolerance for inequality. Well, it's because of behavior. If they would stop acting like gangsters, which is all I ever see them doing, then they wouldn't get themselves into that trouble. We saw Geraldo Rivera say that about Trayvon Martin, right? If he hadn't been wearing that hoodie, uh, which they sell at the Gap, uh, then <laughs> s somehow he was asking for trouble, right? That's, uh, the, the media depictions help to reinforce those stereotypes. And they reinforce a lot of other negative stereotypes of what we see repeatedly over and over again. The gangster, the um, you know, s sole value or contribution as an athlete or an entertainer, 
Uh, not that there's anything wrong with those roles, but if that's the only positive role we see, then there are assumptions made about people's skills and abilities uh, positively and negatively. We also see research that those depictions contribute to some very important and sometimes tragic decisions, to the decision whether to hire someone. Uh, if uh, you get a resume that's from John Smith and you get another resume that's from Jamal Smith uh, and they're identical resumes, research shows that John gets a leg up. John is more likely to get uh, an interview, even though neither one of them has set foot uh, in the, the uh, office yet and uh, they have identical resumes. Uh, again, the media depictions are not the sole reason for that kind of, of bias, be it intentional or, or uh, subconscious, but they're an important contributing factor. Uh, and then simply the diminishing public support for more equal opportunity, for equalizing school funding, for addressing uh, issues of racial profiling, for ensuring that uh, housing and school admissions and other important decisions are fair. Uh, the more one consumes of these negative and, and unbalanced depictions, the less supportive audiences are of those kinds of changes. Uh, another important finding is, and this relates very much to Rachel's point, it affects all of us. So this isn't a matter of oh, you know, white folks are consuming bad depictions uh, of black folks and, you know, it's making them more biased. We're all consuming uh, these depictions. And frequently, these depictions are created by people of color. Uh, so it, this is not a matter of one group being affected and another group being victimized, but rather we're all affected and we're all victimized by this media uh, kind of onslaught that we see. So I want to see if I can give you a couple of examples and talk briefly about those, and then uh, I'll take a seat and we can have more of a conversation. And uh, you know, keep your fingers crossed on the technology front here. Meantime, two teenagers are wounded on the city's south side. It happened at East 74th as an 18-year-old man and 16-year-old girl were hit while standing on the sidewalk. The male's in good condition while the girl's expecting to recover. And kids on the street, as young as four, were there to see it all unfold and had a disturbing reaction. No, I'm not scared of nothing. When What's you get older, you going to stay away from all these guns? No. No? No. What do you want to do when you get older? I'm going to have me a gun. Because I live right here, and I don't want none of my family members to get shot. That is very scary indeed. So far, no suspects are in custody. Meantime, two teenagers are wounded on the city's south side. It happened at East. Okay, so the first time I saw that, I thought, well, that was weird. Why did they put that in, right? So it, it was disturbing to hear that little boy say that. And I also thought it also had no relationship to the story they were telling about this shooting. Uh, but the Maynard Institute, uh, which is uh, a journalism institute, actually helped identify uh, the original interview with this little boy. Uh, and I want to show you that. Well, that's what I like to hear. You ain't scared of nothing. Damn. When you get older, you gonna stay away from all these guns? No. No? No. What do you want to do when you get older? I'm gonna have me a gun. You are? Why do you want to do that? You know what happens when I'm gonna be the police. Okay, well then, then you can have one. Well, that's what I like to hear. You ain't scared of nothing. Damn. So I get angry every time I see that video, and I've seen it about a hundred times. Uh, you know, the, the, it reminds us first that the news is constructed, 
right? Decisions are made about what to include and what, what not to include. At the meta level, we, American society has the lowest, except in some places like Chicago, Amer American cities have the, the lowest crime rate in 50 years. But what do you see on the news? Crime, mayhem, fires. For some reason, they love fires. I haven't been able to figure that out. <laughs> but you know, let's dig deeper. Someone actually took this interview with this little boy, decided to include it, and then to, decided to eliminate the element that turned him from a hero to a thug. Right? Now, my claim is not that this is standard practice, but it's also not aberrant. Right? Decisions like this are made all the time, much subtler decisions typically. Decisions about who you show in handcuffs versus you know, who you show in a suit. Uh, who, who, whose house are you uh, at filming you know, their perp walk uh, versus who is allowed to turn themselves in uh, with their lawyer. Who, who has a, a caption with their actual name underneath uh, versus who are the people who are, are simply a, a nameless suspect of a crime? What victims are covered? You think about the victims of crime, tragically, whose names we know. Natalie Holloway, I believe it was. Uh, the, the kind of succession of tragic stories uh, of typically young white women who have disappeared. And you think about who actually are the much more frequent victims of crime. Uh, and how infrequently we hear their stories. Those are all decisions that are made in newsrooms, but also decisions are made uh, in Hollywood, uh, in uh, television studios, and the like. So I want to show you this next clip, and uh, we'll just uh, talk about it for a moment, and then I will uh, conclude for the time being, uh, because I want to give you a sense of the, uh, the kind of Hollywood uh, side of the story. Now, remember, one of the things that I talked about was the lack of depictions of systemic barriers, unequal barriers uh, and unequal opportunities that black men and boys disproportionately face. That doesn't mean we're all facing them, uh, but uh, rather that those stories are not told with the frequency that those barriers actually occur. There's a flip side of that, which is a very common narrative. And rather than describe it to you, I want to let you take a look. Hi. <laughs> Nervous, some people, huh? <laughs> May I help you? Yes, you have a reservation for an Axel Foley. Well, let's see. I'm sorry, I don't see anything out of that name. Uh, check Rolling Stone Magazine's Axel Foley. That's what it is. <laughs> no, no Rolling Stone, no Axel Foley. I'm sorry, sir. Oh, that's all right. You guys probably just made some kind of mistake with reservations. Why don't you just give me another room now, go up and go to sleep? I'm sorry, sir, but there are no rooms available. Don't you think I realize what's going on here, miss? Who do you think I am, huh? Don't you think I know that if I was some hot shot from out of town that pulled inside here and you guys made a reservation mistake, I'd be the first one to get a room and I'd be upstairs relaxing right now. But I'm not some hot shot from out of town. I'm a small reporter from Rolling Stone magazine that's in town to do an exclusive interview with Michael Jackson. It's going to be picked up by every major magazine in the country. I was going to call the article, Michael Jackson is sitting on top of the world. But now I think I might as well just call it, Michael Jackson can sit on top of the world just as long as he doesn't sit in the Beverly Palm Hotel because there's no niggas allowed in there. Excuse me, sir. Sir, it seems that we do have a, a last-minute cancellation. Uh, there is a room available. It's a suite, but uh, I'll only charge you the single room rate. Thank you. I'm sorry I got upset. It's probably from jet lag or something. I'm very tired. I understand, What's sir. the rate, anyway? Uh, that'll be $235 a night, sir. 
cannot believe it's that hard to rent an apartment. Yes, to think that old landlords wouldn't jump at the chance to rent to somebody with no job, no references, no credit. It's because I'm black, ain't it? <laughs> the executive gym. Nice. Damn, I wish I worked out. <laughs> so, what do you think of AeroCorp? Well, I've seen the gym, the executive dining room, the putting green. Where do you guys make the planes? Whoa, 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 back your nose off the grindstone. Hey, how about we pick out a corner office for you? Without an interview? Wait a second. I'm not going to be unbuttoning my shirt and crying in a minute, am I? <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I mean, isn't there anything you want to know about me, my background, my experience? I mean, what was it about me that interested you in the first place? Um, your name. What about my name? Lopez. What about Lopez? Come on, man, you gotta know. You're Latino. <laughs> Excuse me? Look, George, you know it's a numbers game. We need someone like you in the executive ranks if we're gonna land the government contracts. And so you don't care if I can do the job? I'm sure you can do the job. That's not the point. The point is, we need Lopez. So any Lopez would do. Hell, we had a Rodriguez, but he could pass for Italian. You, look at you. You are a dark brown Mexican hermano. <laughs> oh, yeah? Well, you can watch these dark brown Mexican nalgas walking away from you. Don't look at You're looking at this the wrong way. How many times have you been denied something because you're Latino? It's payback time. Now, what do you say we go grab a smoothie on the white man's dime? Once again, I refer you to the nalgas. <laughs> Look around. All this can be yours. And you want to know the best thing? We can't be fired. Check this out. CEO. Hey, you better stop shredding paper and start shredding that big ass cracker. <laughs> ben, let me make this clear. There is no way in hell I would take this job. I'd rather go back on the line forever than to be somebody's token. You know what, man? I don't want to live in a world where I can't be fired for slapping a white man's nalgas. Russell, yo! And you scared me. You scared of black people? No. It's 2012, baby. I'm... Taxi! You see, they don't stop because I'm Latina. Or because that was just a yellow car. Okay, I included Sophia there just so you see it's not just us, right? That story, I had no trouble finding those clips. That story is told over and over and over again, that black people are obsessed with race and that we use accusations of racism, the race card, to get over. So we don't have to work hard so that we can get into a hotel uh, that we're not supposed to be in. <clears throat> By contrast, how many stories have you seen, how many depictions have you seen of actual discrimination against black folks, right, particularly black men? So the point, again, is not that there are no worthwhile depictions, uh, that every depiction is negative or tells a negative story, but rather that there's a sense of imbalance that is harmful to us as consumers of media, and by extension, is harmful to us as a society. That seeing the same depictions, the same stories over and over again gets inside of our heads. In a way that we're not 
always conscious of ourselves or able to to disengage from in order to make rational decisions so i look forward to talking about some of the things that we can do about it but since that clip was a little long i want to wind up here and simply say one of the 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 part of the good news as rachel described is simply knowing this simply thinking about it helps simply being aware of what you're being fed helps i'll end with a very quick story I, uh, my kids, I have two little girls, and they watch a lot of Disney Channel and uh, Nickelodeon, which, you know, we'll talk about that some other time. But, <laughs> uh, but repeatedly what I see on those shows are depictions of sassy, typically overweight, wisecracking black women that are precisely the same image that we had in 19, you know, in Gone with the Wind and, uh, you know, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And so I point that out to them. And, uh, you know, now they're just like, Daddy, you know, please don't say that again. You're ruining the show. Uh, But uh, I was watching with them uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which is actually one of my favorite films. But you'll remember that the African-American maid in the the movie, at the end, she throws her money in and says something like, I was saving this for a husband, but you can have it. And my younger daughter turned around and looked at me. And I didn't say anything, but I thought, yes. (laughs) She got it, right? That, to me, is half the victory. Even if American media never changes, I know that I'm inside of her head telling her a different story. And that's something that everything, every one, uh, one of you in this room can do. So I look forward to the Q&A, and thanks very much. So I, I guess my preference would be just to go straight to questions, yeah? Yeah, we would love to hear from all of you questions, uh, thoughts you have about uh, the research you've been hearing, thoughts you have about your own experiences. I think there's a microphone over there. Or if you want to just stand up, that would be great, too. Thank you both for coming this evening. It's been somewhat enlightening. Um, sir, while I share your, your view, um, but I should be doing more. Um, to end these predictions, negative predictions. Um, and we can say um, unequivocally that most media production is controlled by the state. Um, the reality is Google Glass play a role in media production. If not the role as journalists, um, certainly as video producers, uh, filmmakers. Um, and it's troubling to note that sometimes they too are perpetuating the negative stereotype. Um, have you thought about this? And yeah. What do you think can be done uh, for, for blacks to help deconstruct some of these? Yeah, thanks very much. And also thank you for uh, making your question short and actually a question. So that, that could be a great model for everybody. Um, yeah. At, sure. Um, the, the, uh, hopefully I can capture it fairly that um, the in, in addition to most media is produced by white folks, but increasingly African-Americans are producing media, maybe not uh, in large numbers as journalists, but as you know, uh, musicians and videographers and filmmakers and the like. Uh, and they're uh, often, or we, are often responsible for some of these negative uh, images. Uh, so I absolutely agree with you. 
and and you know by the way that's always been the case right so the the it's you know it's it's always been the case that for instance some some of you in the room are are old enough to remember Amos and Andy and Step and Fetch it and you know African American actors at first they were whites in blackface but then portrayed by African American actors who were perpetuating horrible stereotypes they didn't control the media but they were certainly contributing to it now in some instances we control the media you know black entertainment television is a great example i think that the the news reporting on BET is actually excellent they've covered issues of aids and hiv in the black community and the like the the uh, the entertainment programming is often carrying the worst kinds of stereotypes um, you know hot ghetto mess comes to mind uh, as an example I, you know, I think we need to be getting the word out with our own folks as well, and starting young, but also going to the top. I mean, I was at a forum uh, just a, a couple of months ago with um, one of the executives at BET, and we had this conversation. Uh, and I've, I've had the conversation with with folks at BET on on several occasions. I think we need to be having, you know, I, I think we need to be educating everyone, uh, and we have to be intolerant of uh, the, the perpetuation of truly negative stereotypes, whatever the source. Now, I'm not for censorship. I don't think we should be uh, you know, uh, trying to ban particular images. But I think both as consumers and as moral leaders, we need to be promoting the good ones and speaking out against the negative ones. The, the last thing I'll say there is that because of social media, Facebook and Twitter and uh, YouTube, this is the first moment in human history in which probably everyone in this room can reach an audience of millions of people. That has never been true. Uh, in the history of humankind, so we, you know, as as uh, Spider-Man would say, you know, that's with great power comes great responsibility. We need to be thinking about the images that we're conveying. What are we retweeting? What are we, you know, sending to other folks? Uh, you know, what are we saying about New Jersey that we shouldn't be saying? So, uh, so thanks very much for your question. And just a quick follow-up related to the the fact that sort of negative images are perpetuated through entertainment. Uh, even by those who might seem to be affected by them and have uh, alternative uh, goals and, and senses of what's, what, what's right, often progressives inadvertently kind of create some of the same um, distortions as well, again, with good intentions. So those of us who are deeply concerned, for example, about poverty or about arrest rates uh, in communities of color will emphasize the poverty and say emphasize the fact that you know sort of 25% of African American boys aren't graduating from high school. There's, and, and we do so to create a sense of urgency so that we focus our energies on education. But what we're not talking about is what about the 75% of the young men and boys who are graduating? They become lost. And again, when you have a combination of people who care and are trying to create moral urgency around problems linked with the media's distorted uh, pictures of you know, who's poor, who's engaged in criminal activity, then the lack of empathy that was created by those distortions together with the emphasis on the negative from those of us who are actually trying to, to correct the problems results in a sense of futility. There's nothing any of us can do. It's all so bad. So I think it's, it is incumbent on us all to make sure that kind of the reality is visible. So we talk about the 75% who are graduating and still express the concern for the 25% who we need to you know, sort of fix the schools so that they have, have opportunities as well. So it's, it's on both sides. I want to encourage you, if you can get to the microphone, to please do, just so everybody can hear your question. But I recognize some of you are seated in the middle. You can't, may not be able to do that. 
Yes. Now you can get to the microphone. So what can you go over? Can you use the microphone? All right, go ahead. Yeah. Well, I have a, um, I really appreciate your work. I'm glad you show um, how media and images can be manipulated. I'm a filmmaker myself, and I know strategically when I'm trying to do something that a cut, a millisecond of a frame, can totally distort um, an image. And uh, in terms of full disclosure, I am a recipient of the Open Society Institute Fellowship class of 2010, which has allowed me to continue this work. But what I'm going to share <laughs> what I would like to know from you is being a physically large, dark complexion, broad figured um, African uh, man in America, maneuvering quite a bit in the social justice, political, human empowerment community with some very wonderful, good-natured white folk who, at times, I can see physically have an issue with just my mere physical presence, the tone, of, um, the tone and timbre of my voice, and having an issue where I can actually see physical changes and nervousness and awkwardness about it. But then, the inverse, I find myself at times, I'm trying to squeeze it out. I call it my own internal slave, of mm -hmm. uh, trying to make my six foot four, over 250 pound frame shrink to make a little white person feel more comfortable and possibly assist me in the work I'm trying to do. Could you address the, that sort of dynamic? And I just want to share real quick, screening a film here October 7th that I did with some wonderful children in East Baltimore. The flyers are out there. The time is wrong. It's not three o'clock, it's two o'clock. I had to do that kind of pitch. <laughs> no worries. And you want to start? How do you feel about my comment? Yeah. I think you're describing, obviously, a dynamic that you experience and that the white person who you're trying to help may not consciously be aware that he or she is experiencing, and so you're doing all the work. And it shouldn't be that you're doing all the work. It should be that the white person, you know, sort of particularly, frankly, in the social justice community, but in all communities, begins to realize that, you know, his or her unconscious fears and concerns are really creating a barrier between the ability to interact as humans. And again, more of the work should be on her in terms of what, so everyone in this room, hopefully, by beginning to be part of this process, will the next time they're interacting with a man who has your physical stature will just be like, wow, this guy's you know big, tall, strong guy and won't carry with it the baggage. And that's the hope. When you're interacting with people who aren't in this room and haven't been in this room, again, I can't, it's obviously impossible for me as the, as the white person to say kind of what you ought to do because you've already been doing the work, right? And that, that's part of the, the kind of the unfairness of, of the way this situational dynamic uh, has evolved, that you're conscious of what's going on and he or she is not. Um, so I think that it sounds like you have some strategies that you've already used, in a sense, successfully to navigate these terrains, but it's probably exhausting. And you don't want to have to do that anymore. And again, you, you ought not. I think that if some of the work that, that Alan describes happens and the media distortions are begin to diminish and the realities portrayed, that work will be less necessary. 
And I think the example that, that Alan gave earlier of the incredible success the gay and lesbian community has had in changing the, the, um, the, the portrayal of gay and lesbians on television, which has resulted in a sea change in the way our political dynamic works uh, in, in that context is something that, that we all have to work toward uh, in the portrayals of, of black men and boys, again, so you don't have to do that work. Yeah, I, I have a specific suggestion, uh, but I also wanted to just pull out that you know part of what you're articulating is the difference between old school ideological racism and you know often subconscious bias. Uh, in other words, you know it's not that you're barred at the door because of your heritage, but you know some of your characteristics you know matter in people's brains. So you know when I, I I used to never be able to catch a cab in New York City, and I moved to to Washington for a few years. When I moved back, I was able to catch a cab, and I thought, oh, people are less racist. And I realized, no, you're just old now, <laughs> right? I had you know I got my gray hair, and they're not afraid of me anymore. And I'm sure if you were to give these cab drivers, you know, truth serum and said, you know, why did you or did not, they wouldn't say, you know, because I will not stop for a black man who's below a, you know, below age such and so. But but the cues they were picking up was, you know, related to danger when I was young and and no longer do. So you know, I, I feel you when you're talking about that. I, you know, uh, I, I'm not as big as you, but um, you know, I I have definitely seen how if I'm wearing a suit, it's different from if I'm wearing sweatshirt, what have you. My thought for you as a filmmaker is you might find a way, and maybe YouTube is a good venue or Facebook, to tell that story in a way that doesn't focus on any one individual, but simply says, you know, here's, here's my experience as, you know, a, a large, black, a dark-skinned black man. And, you know, when, when people are going to meet with you, they're going to Google you to see who am I meeting with. And they might find that video, you know, and if it's done in the right way, it might actually inoculate them, you know. Some people might piss them off, but my own view is that's okay. Uh, but I, I think it's, you know, it's it's a worthwhile experiment. The last thing I want to say is that, um, you know, a lot of research and and focus groups and the like were done when when Barack Obama was first running for president. And one of the findings, this is shorthand, but I think this is basically accurate, is that had he been any darker skinned, he would have had no chance of becoming president. Uh, a lot of the ads that were used. You know, were tested with with African American families, lighter skinned African American families. You know, people were cool. Darker skinned African American families. You know, they were too black. So, um, you know, I I, I want to both validate what you're saying and also, you know, that's my kind of suggestion for something that that you might try. Okay, let's hear from somebody else. Yes, sir. Yeah, go ahead. So you both raised your hands, oh, so sorry, why don't you go ahead and then sure. we'll hear from um, Well, the thank gentleman. you so much. That was a really, really interesting presentation. I was really compelled by what you said about your daughters, um, and I love, would love to hear from you guys if you have any um, research that comes to mind or promising practices for working with especially like elementary and middle school age children to try to prevent this behavior before you're old and, you know, old habits die hard and old dog sailors and all that stuff. So I just feel like that work is really compelling to me. And if you guys have examples, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. Do you want to talk? I mean, the, the most successful uh, interventions that we can engage in is to live in integrated environments um, and to have you know, schools where there are you know, sort of teachers and principals of every race and ethnicity and to have our kids you know, interacting 
um, kind of across race as early as possible. So that's the ideal. And so if, you know, that's obviously an ideal that is difficult for you. Know, one individual can't create that ideal necessarily. So if you are uh, an educator and if your school is predominantly one race or another, uh, so re relatively racially isolated, creating opportunities with sister schools to have um, interactions that where kids are engaged in activities together and form teams um, and unite uh, can make a real difference. One of the things that's, of course, interesting is another aspect of bias is, is in-group preference, right? That's a fairly kind of quote-unquote natural uh, tendency of humans to prefer and favor their own. But what is, of course, not natural is how we define who our own is. So we could, you know, we could make this room, we could have this group be the, you know, the sort of the cool group and this group be the not cool group just by saying it and immediately you guys would think you're really cool and you guys would be irritated at them for looking down on you, right? Because so, so we could create that group and groups can be created um, and the sense of the we uh, across race uh, is absolutely creatable. There was an interesting study um, of babies that showed that babies are actually more comfortable with someone of who speaks their language who has a different skin color than they are with someone who speaks a different language but is of the same skin color. So actually the presumption that somehow we're all innately racist is, is wrong. So again, that interaction and creating group activities where people are kind of engaged in a common endeavor does it a huge amount of work. Just um, two, two more things I wanted to add. One to just build on something that Rachel said. The, a lot of the research, and this is some of this is going back 50 years now, is that um, kind of creating teams where n no one has an inherent advantage and you're basically having interracial groups of kids work together to solve a problem, but it's not a problem that you know either the white kids or the black kids or the Asian American kids are going to have a, a leg up, right? So they've really got to work together and nobody's going to be a, a superior partner. Is, is very, very important. And that's something, you know, it feels artificial, but actually uh, it, it increasingly reflects our workplaces and it's something that can be structured. And the last thing is, there's a wonderful film uh, documentary called uh, Eye of the Storm. Have any of you seen this? This was a, a, something that a, a school teacher, she was actually a, a, a nun at a Catholic school, in an all-white class, told, as Rachel noted, half the kids uh, that they were blue eyes and they're smart. Uh, and they are superior, and the other kids, you know, you're brown eyes. And every time a kid would say something, she would say to them, you know, that's what a brown eye would say. Uh, you know, why can't you just, you know, get it together? And by the end of the day, the blue-eyed kids were beating up the brown-eyed kids. They were spitting on them. They were calling them uh, all kinds of names. And then the next day, she said, you know, I got it wrong. Actually, it's, it's the brown-eyed kids who are smarter, and I don't know what I was thinking of. And so, of course, the process you know, reversed, and then she told them. Now, I don't know that you could get away with this now, <laughs> but the film still exists. And there was a follow-up uh, 20 years later, a reunion of those kids who talked about how that experience completely changed their worldview as they left their, in their case, all-white community and encountered people of other groups. And this was during the late 60s uh, when, when this happened. So, you know, Get the film, take a look, see if you think it's appropriate for the age kids you're working with. You know, there, there probably is a more humane version of what she did with those kids that, uh, you know, can, can be found. Uh, but it's, it's a, a really a transformative uh, film if you can find it. Okay, can we take a few more? Yes, sir. Hi. Um, 
both of your presentations were very interesting. Um, and I guess if I could, my question could be a follow-up to the previous question. Are there places where intervention is most successful? So if you have kind of, you bring forth this type of awareness, are there places like institutions or mm. where bringing it up and, and making people aware allows for their, you to max, uh, allows for one to maximize success in kind of alleviating this problem? And I guess this is another follow-up. Are there certain types of interventions that are mo more successful than others? I guess maybe that's place-dependent. Well, I can start, but I, I suspect Rachel has more um, research-based answer. But in terms of naturally occurring uh, situations, sports and music uh, have, have proven to be the most successful integrationist uh, uh, institutions and the military. Right for reasons that you can imagine, the military is structured. It's egalitarian in its own way. Uh, you know, people basically come with roughly equal skills, and it's a command structure where there's really you know very little room to to deviate. So the military was at one you know was for a long time quite racist, but once the command came down that it would no longer be so, uh, it was one of the quickest institutions to desegregate and to to actually integrate in a productive way and to promote people. Uh, of, of different races. Uh, in the context of, of music and sports, you have these kind of natural, you, you have people gravitating uh, of, of different uh, racial and ethnic groups, and there's nothing about your, your race or ethnicity that particularly you know, gives you a leg up, typically, in most you know, amateur sports situations. And, but also, you find, this was especially true in the, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, that um, people in, in the, the, the majority group get to see the bias that their, their minority colleagues are up against in a way that they wouldn't otherwise see. So often you hear about you know, that your team goes to another school and they, you know, they, they won't play you or they spit on you or what have you, or somebody gets teased. You're seeing that now with soccer uh, in, in Europe. Uh, it, it tends to be a bonding experience. So you know, I, I'll turn to Rachel to talk uh, uh, you know, more perhaps about the you know what the research experiments show, but I think you know, kind of capturing those three naturally occurring situations is important, and kind of figuring out what is it about those situations that has led to a, a much more kind of integrated, e kind of easy and organic integration in some ways than in, in some other institutions. So just to address um, sort of two, uh, a couple of different forums where, where this issue is so crucial. Um, let's talk about schools for one second. Um, there is a way that the racial anxiety that I described earlier um, that prevents sometimes well-meaning whites from being able to provide the kind of appropriate sort of mentoring and teaching to students of color can be overcome. And it's actually fairly straightforward. Um, again, Claude Steele did the work. So the desire to properly mentor someone, even if you're afraid that that person's going to see you as a racist, can be altered if you're given essentially training on how to do effective uh, cross-racial mentoring. And here's what the training shows. Uh, simple criticism from a uh, white uh, superior to a, 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 um, a student or a um, sort of you know, associate in a law firm, for example, um, can be perceived as biased. So can the, you did great. That's seen as biased, because everyone knows that there's things they can improve. So that's seen as condescending. 
Um, but what can, what, what is, tends to be received and actually in some, in some studies, the students of color in the example outperformed and saw less bias than the white students is, is a process of, of stating high expectations. This is a project that we think needs to be done very well. Being very specific about why the person thinks this individual is capable of meeting those expectations. You know, you wrote this essay and you described, you know, three specific examples of, you know, why your thesis is correct. And then specific criticism that the person can meet. So I have high expectations for you. I think you can meet them. And here's how. When that kind of mentoring happens, it can um, absolutely lead to engagement and a sense of collaboration between the, you know, the sort of the person who's uh, giving the feedback and the person who's receiving it. So I think part of what's really important is to understand what the problem is that you're trying to diagnose. So again, if the problem is the sort of, you know, bringing John Smith back for the interview but not Jamal Smith, frankly, really all we generally need to do is to alert people. This is something that we're seeing. You know, we're getting 100 applications uh, from African Americans and 100 from whites, and we're bringing back, you know, 150 whites and only 50 African Americans. Something's up here. Let, let's fix it. That, in a cognitive, you know, in a cognitive sense, people can say, "Oh, gee, what am I doing?" And they can they can fix it. If it's dynamic and relational, being specific about how the person can interact with someone in a way that doesn't trigger the "I think you're a racist" can be really helpful. Just being really concrete. I have three questions. The first of which is how, how to avoid exacerbating class-based biases in trying to overcome racial biases. Because often I hear, for the hoodie example, you know, you can get it at the gap or, well, she's a doctor. Well, so what? What if they were a janitor or weren't dressed very well? Or what if they were homeless? Why? How do we avoid? getting into that kind of in-group, out-group categorization. Um, and then my second was, are there any studies that are done on African males, immigrants, or their children, and comparing, I just want to understand the role that history in the United States, as minorities in the United States over time, affects perceptions of bias. Um, and then thirdly, I'm curious about uh, biases against black women, because we didn't really talk much about that, um, and how, what is it, it I, I was getting the sense that somehow the biases against black women are not as, that they're different somehow and aren't as, um, don't result in the same kinds of outcomes, and I, I don't understand it completely, and I was hoping you could clarify. Sure. Well, I can start there. So they are different, but I, you know, I hope you didn't hear me to say that that somehow biases against black women are not as serious or problematic, or you know. So I, I think we just have to recognize that the stereotypes are different. I think you know, thinking about all of your questions together, um, you know, it's this notion of intersectionality, right? That it's not, you know, it's. I, I'm black and I'm also a man and I'm also from New Jersey and you know I'm uh, you know I'm middle-aged now and all of those things are part of my identity and they're also part of what's perceived by the outside world and there are often stereotypes and and biases attached to each one and there are biases that I'm carrying around myself so the the point being I think we need to be attuned to the full package so if you you know uh, 
welfare is the perfect example. If you, you know, Google, uh, Google images, uh, you know, welfare recipient or welfare mother, you'll immediately get a black woman's image, even though black women represent a, a fraction, you know, not, not even the plurality of, uh, of people who receive welfare. Uh, so it's a, it, there are most definitely stereotypes uh, and very pernicious ones attached to uh, black, black femaleness uh, around sexuality, around, you know, irresponsible parenting and the like. They're just a different, related, but a different set of stereotypes than, than tend to attach to black men and boys. Our research funded by Open Society uh, Foundation was, was on black men and boys, so that's what I was presenting, but, uh, but I do want to be clear about that. Um, and I'm not sure the answer about, um, about Africans in America and perceptions. I can tell you that the research shows that the uh, new immigrants typically are less, uh, less perceive less discrimination than uh, people of the same ethnicity who've been in the country longer. Um, my own view is that that's politicization, stuff that you might not process as discrimination. Once you've been around a while, you see nobody else is getting treated like that. You realize, hey, that you know this is unfair. I think that has been less true. In other words, I think uh, uh, Muslim, South Asian, Arab American or Arab immigrants, I should say, uh, at least since 9/11. Have, have not fallen into that pattern. In other words, they perceive discrimination pretty quickly uh, and have been less likely to say that. But I don't know the answer specifically uh, as to Africans. Um, I want to make sure Rachel gets a chance to weigh in. Yeah, I can talk a little bit about the information uh, relating to African immigrants because um, African immigrants often come from very highly educated families. And if you're an immediate immigrant, you're coming from a society where you weren't discriminated against. And so even when the discrimination occurs, it sometimes is felt differently. And so it may not um, have the same level of, of self-harm. And so it, in some sense, you know, we, we now see, for example, that at highly selective colleges, there's a significantly higher percentage of either African immigrants or the children of African or Caribbean immigrants than the makeup of the population would suggest. And some have said that's undoubtedly because the stereotypes don't result in the same degree of threat and therefore you know sort of uh, people are able to do their best work more easily than someone who, who who you know sort of whose family has been subject to the kind of discrimination over decades that someone who grew up in this country does so there, there is a difference in the way that the discrimination is processed which can lead to it in some sense harming the person less it doesn't mean that they're they're experiencing it less the feeling doesn't go as deep, and so they're, they're a little bit safer from it. It's that inoculation uh, to some degree. And to address your, uh, to address your question about uh, research involving black women, there is some um, research showing that actually many of the stereotypes about black women, I mean, I'm sorry, about black men, are translated onto black women. And so race sometimes does trump gender in ways that we might not expect. Now, that can lead, in some sense, to some uh, sense that black women are often perceived as strong and that again that can be positive in some instances and so you know black women are in, in the workplace sometimes are actually perceived as stronger and more effective in leadership capacities than white women so again stereotypes obviously can play different roles um, but there are ways in which again the, the some of the negative stereotypes and you know police treating black women very differently than they would white women uh, for example I mean your class question is is a, is a really important and difficult one because the process that Alan described of altering our culture 
to uh, engage empathy does have a very class-based dynamic. If you are someone who's wearing, you know, sort of a polo shirt and khakis, you know, young black man wearing polo shirt and khakis, young black woman wearing, you know, a, a skirt and a, and a shirt with a, a little, you know, sort of pretty pearl buttons, it may be an easier task to elicit that empathy than if you're homeless. Because white homeless, you know, kind of there are, there are categories that are dehumanized, whatever the race. So when you're linking, the, having that intersectionality, that process becomes more difficult. And it's one that we as a society have to work even harder for. So thank you for those questions. Hello. Good evening. David. My question relates to an experience that I've taken upon recently. I've gone to uh, Nairobi, Kenya. And in going there, because I am an American, um, and an African-American at that, uh, friends and family who are also African-American would say to me, you'll see a lot of bugs, you'll see a lot of animals walking in the street, and when in fact Nairobi is a huge city. So then when, you, uh, when I actually went to Nairobi, I was approached with, um, why, why, why do not African-Americans get over racism? Why are you guys so holding on to slavery? So my question to you is, um, what interventions would you suggest to counter internal racism, whether it be in African-American communities, Latino communities, and all, all communities? I am finding that more media images are actually showing people becoming uh, more at peace with their uh, racist thoughts or their racist attitudes and actually making fun or light of the, the situation rather than actually challenging it. So what uh, interventions uh, would you suggest in terms of countering that? What can we use to show that we need to bring about change? Thank you. Yeah, and your research is wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. That's a really hard question. <laughs> it's, you're leading forward. Do you have a, an answer? I'm, I'm Interested in your answer. <laughs> yeah, okay. I was afraid of that. Um, so, I, I mean, I have a, a few thoughts. I mean, one is, you know, good old-fashioned political education, right? We need to spend time both educating ourselves and educating folks in our community about our history, about the fact that some of these patterns, you know, things that we see, uh, you know, that, that we see uh, on television, I'm focusing on media now, but it's not only about media, today actually, you know, date back to specific efforts to enslave or disempower us uh, and why that matters and why it matters to our future success. Why, you know, some of these things may be funny, but they're also deadly serious and we need to overcome them. And just literally the process of, of organizing and enlightenment. I think media literacy is really important. Helping, you know, I gave the story of my kids. I want them to see, you know, all media through a lens of, well, okay, you know, why do I keep seeing this, a particular type of person? And it could be African-American women, it could be, you know, uh, it could be gay characters, it could be, you know, the immigrant who, who's always playing the maid. Uh, you know, I want them to be conscious of that and to be processing that, uh, and, and I want to be conscious of it myself. So, you know, those are kind of, of, of you know, almost one-on-one -on -one and smaller group interventions that I think are really important. And then I think we have to be more proactive media consumers. I mean, this is a broader uh, strategy and a longer term strategy, but it's, it's really important. Media's in transition, right? And they're struggling, you know, every type of media, except maybe video games, is struggling to figure out how to keep an audience in a, in a changing media environment. The choices that we make, the things that we choose to watch 
and to sites we choose to visit and the like, not only are they crucially important at this moment in time, but they're very trackable. You know, it used to be if you didn't have a Nielsen box on your TV, they didn't know what media you were consuming. Today, you know, they know what you're Googling, they know what, what you're buying on Amazon. I'm saying they, it's not, I don't mean to sound like conspiracy theorists, but uh, the, the folks who are advertisers and media makers are very aware of the choices that we're making. And I think we need to be more, much more proactive uh, about those choices. Um, the, the last thing I'll say is that I think part of that activism has to be about what media is exported. You know, what are people outside of the United States learning about us? And I mean us as Americans, us as, you know, people of color or what, whatever, you know, our, our group is. A, a quick story is that my brother uh, is uh, an English, he teaches English as a second language, and he spent two years in Taiwan. Uh, and then he spent 15 years in China, in mainland China. And his time in ta Taiwan was cut short because he couldn't get jobs because his students were terrified of him. And, and he's, he's also six foot six. He got the height in the family, but he's, he's no more scary than I am. Uh, and he's fluent in Mandarin Chinese, right? And, and as an East Asian studies major, we went to China, this was 15 years ago, uh, he didn't have that experience because at that time they were not consuming American media. So they didn't have any preconceptions about what black people were about or whether they should be scared. They were interested. They wanted to touch his hair all the time, but they weren't afraid of him. Uh, now that's changed, right? Because now they're consuming, uh, unfortunately, our media in the same way. So, you know, we, we, that's something about which we need to, to organize. Uh, and, and educate, and those are two sides of the coin. We need to be educating ourselves and those people who are consuming media, and we also need to be organizing against uh, some of these really negative images. Thanks. Do we, I'm gonna ask our organizers, how are we on time? Do you wanna? Okay, let's take two more, and then we'll wrap. Mm -hmm. Yes, ma'am. Good evening, how are you? Good evening. Um, your, your story about um, your family member's experience reminds me of the quote that one of America's biggest exports is racism and is the stereotyping. And I am just wondering about your thoughts about how the popular narrative of American values and the depiction of people in the color in the media, specifically black men and black women, would change if there were popular acknowledgement in this narrative story that the bulk of American history, 91% according to Professor Ted Shaw, of the history of this country has been one of legal racial apartheid structural racism. So if we stopped focusing on the, what, eight or nine percent of the recent spoken values of equity, et cetera, et cetera, and really start acknowledging the impact of that 91 percent on, on our economic outcomes, our social outcomes, our educational outcomes, et cetera, how do you think that that would change the empathy, the understanding of the impact of structural racism and the barriers that people of color have to face on the day to day? How do you think that it would impact the story that is not just about the interpersonal, 
the interpersonal, but it is about the structural, and it is about those outcomes. And my second question is just um, acknowledging the, the story of gays and lesbians and the, the positive changes in their depiction. Can you also talk about the racialization within that community, as in other communities, and the fact that it is much easier to change a dynamic when you look at any group of people and you see your family members, your sons, your daughters, your cousins, as opposed to looking at them and not seeing anyone that you want to recognize or acknowledge as human. Thank you. Thanks, so that's a lot. Um, <laughs> I have two quick thoughts. I want to make sure uh, Rachel's able to get in. Um, <clears throat> on, the, on the storytelling, I think you know, what experience and research shows is that the answer is yes, it helps. It's very important to raise those structural factors, but the story has to be told in a way that people can hear, and that that's really crucial. And si often, we're telling the story by assuming that people are already with us and already have that history, and we're just referencing it. Well, as you know, America's been racist for the last 300 years, but we've already lost you know, our audience. And so that means you know, medium matters. If I have an 11-second soundbite, and I want to talk about the history of colonialism and slavery, you know, I'm not going to be able to convey. I need to go straight to values. I, I need to say, you know what? We, it, we believe strongly in the, in the idea of equal opportunity, that what you look like, what, where you come from, should not determine your life chances. But we're not achieving that when it comes to our criminal justice system, for example. That, you know, that's my 11-second soundbite. Now, if I have you know, an hour, then I'm going to talk to you about you know, media trends and how that's you know, contributing to discrimination. I think we also often forget that. We try to cram the entire history of our you know, society and our people into the 11 seconds, and then we're not actually moving anybody. I wanted to just um, talk about the, the LGBT issue. I mean, one of the things, we, we, another report that you can find on our website looks at um, LGBT equality or gay and lesbian equality issues in the black and Latino media uh, and public opinion. And one of the things that we found is that, number one, the public opinion among African Americans and Latinos about LGBT, gay and, and lesbian uh, rights issues much more positive and, and rights-oriented than the, the rap that we get. Uh, and secondly, that just as you note, um, being able to, to see individuals who look like you in, in other ways is a very important part of that. So Ricky Martin coming out, for example, turned out to be very important in the Latino, Latino community in terms of building support for gay equality. People were, because it was easy for people to say, oh, you know, gay people, that's, that's a white thing. You know, we don't have gay and lesbian people in our community, right? Which is, of course, absurd. But you know, uh, here's this guy who's beloved. And he says, yes, I'm gay. And you know, I'm proud of it. That was a, a very important watershed moment, and I think that the same, though you know, more slowly and more quietly, is happening in the African-American community, and I think that those, that trend is very important. Um, I also heard your question to, uh, your, your latter question to address the sort of the challenges, as you described, of, you know, if you're talking about a white family, if you're talking about people who are living in an all-white environment, what is their incentive to care about equality? Because they're not seeing their own son, daughter, sister, brother in the same way that they, they may be with, with gay and lesbian issues. And frankly, I think the fact that intermarriage is increasing a great deal, people are more frequent and more likely to have 
you know, a daughter marry, a son marries, you know, sort of our families are linking and, and connecting in ways that we hadn't generations ago. I think that actually is making a difference. And I think that the more, you know, sort of the more we expand the we, the more the empathy does occur. And you're right, that is crucial to anything else happening. And I would concur with Alan, we actually did a study. If we have time to go through the, the links, the generational links, and you know, ex explain to people that you know, sort of, a lot of white uh, working class folks became middle class because the government gave them mortgage guarantees, and those mortgage guarantees were not given to black families. A lot of you know, whites went to college for the first time because they were given government backing, and those didn't go to people of color. When we have time and we have the, the messenger credibility to, to explain that, it does make a, a huge difference to people's understanding of the structural uh, inequalities you're talking about. But again, I concur with Alan, if we, if we have the one paragraph, starting with history does tend, and I, you know, I, I sort of hate to admit this because white people look like idiots when I say it, they, they get afraid, turn back, and, and, and stop reading. Literally 15% of people will just duck and cover when, when they start hearing about the history, if it's happening in that short time. But if you have a chance to really engage and get into the, the, the details, it, you're right, it does make a big difference. Excuse me, but uh, there are some of us that need to leave. It's only because we came in a bus, and the bus is waiting outside for us since 8.30, and we have enjoyed so much everything that you've presented, and it's very interesting and evocative, So, but this is the reason why we have to leave. When you got to go, you got to go. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Well, let's all uh, give a big hand to Rachel and... You know, I think it's such a pleasure to hear speakers like we've had tonight because they really are able to tell us so very clearly uh, what their own research and publications and, uh, and polling uh, are, are finding. And I think that information is really inspiring in part because, especially when we're talking about implicit bias, um, there are some very concrete things that we've heard tonight. I hope that you feel like I do, that there's some real tools and real approaches that we can use in our own families and in the community. And a lot of it starts with sessions like tonight where we're talking and reflecting and becoming more aware of some of the dynamics of play in ourselves, but in the people with whom we're working and whom uh, we're uh, living in our, in our community here. So I want to thank you so much. I hope that we'll all follow up uh, both in our actions and our, and our, our self-awareness, but also in some of the reading and, and research that we've heard uh, referenced tonight, because I think their work is tremendous work. It's very clearly presented, and I hope we all share it. Thank you so much. <laughs>